Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. As always, with hosts Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand, and we start off with two fantastic guests, Mr. Ross Garber, a political investigations and impeachment lawyer at the Garber Group. He's also a CNN legal analyst, and along with him, political professor William Howell at the University of Chicago. Rich, take it away. Thank you both so much for joining us. We're going to jump right in. Now that the impeachment trial is behind us, of course, we want to take a little bit deeper dive and analyze from both a legal and political perspective, two things we love on this show, what went wrong, what we could learn, some takeaways. So the first thing is, Ross, I want to get your perspective on legally, was it a mistake not to actually call witnesses? I think it was a huge blunder because, you know, that tepid statement that was read into the record you know, I don't think it really convinced anyone. I would have loved to see Kevin McCarthy, um, other witnesses to actually testify and have to speak out loud about what the president was doing during this insurrection. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a legal perspective, but with impeachments, it's wrapped up in the political perspective. And the problem is, uh, you know, this trial had a format that was used in, you know, the last Trump trial, which is based on the Clinton trial, where the whole point is to get to an acquittal as quickly as possible. And so in Clinton, there were no live witnesses who testified, just uh, uh, a couple of depositions. In the first Trump trial, there were no witnesses who testified. And then this trial, there were no witnesses who testified. And so if the objective is to potentially get a conviction, if the objective is to have public confidence in the process, the objective is to actually learn any facts, then it's a mistake not to call witnesses. Um, so I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, Professor, what are your thoughts? Politically, of course, you know, if your audience is not only those hundred senators listening to your argument, but if your audience is truly the American public and you're trying to convince them that President Trump did something inherently wrong and that should disqualify him from office, what does you want to hear from, you know, Kevin McCarthy and other members of the Republican Party about the degree to which Trump was knee-deep in this and gleefully, by most accounts, supporting this insurrection? Sure, I think that you would. I'd say the case for uh, witnesses was even greater on the first trial because their uh, matters of fact were in greater dispute. Um, there was he, Here, what was front and center was not so much what Trump was doing in, amidst the ins, in, insurrection. It was the speech he gave beforehand and the long period of disinformation, um, the claims about uh, the election being stolen that led up to it. And none of those facts are in dispute. Um, I'll say, you know, it's also not altogether clear that had, you know, having witnesses or not having witnesses was going to bear at all on the outcome. I don't think anybody expected to get to uh, a conviction, no matter what kind of trial was put on. And so there are these larger political imperatives, very much including um, Biden's interest in getting back to work and actually attending to the crises that we now face. This isn't to say that concerns about accountability are not getting to work. I mean, they're very, they're substantive reasons for holding the trial. But I think there was a, a, an interest on both sides to try to put this thing forward and, and, and move on, recognizing there's no way they were going to get to 67. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and and, and I, I don't disagree that there was probably no way, um, but you know, back in the uh, in the Nixon investigation, people thought there was no way they'd get to a, a an impeachment and a conviction there. And then all of a sudden you had witnesses testify. You had John Dean who testified and then you had uh, Butterfield who testified and that, you know, and the release of the changed. tapes. And so, so and, and the release was. of the tapes. And so that that changed everything. It's true. And, and, and to be honest, I didn't even predict seven uh, Republicans going south on Trump. I don't know. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I agree. Five. Prob- yeah, yeah, the yeah, North Carolina prob- senator was the big surprise one, right? North Carolina, uh, uh, it, well, I, I think Burr was a surprise, and I think Cassidy, Cassidy from Louisiana to me was a surprise also. No, Burr. That's right, Burr. Yeah. So, gentlemen, what do you think about the fact that Trump was only charged with one count, um, incitement of insurrection, rather than potential other counts like dereliction of duty? So, look, an insurrection, if you take that seriously, is plenty basis to, to my mind at least, to impeach somebody. And it was the, and what they wanted to do was provide a very simple, straightforward, clear case. And a dereliction of duty, there's something to that, but boy, that is fraught, right? I mean, there's so many dimensions to that. And trying to unpack that in the waning days of a presidency um, was more than I think that they wanted to take on. I think it was strategically, it made sense for them to just do the one count. Yeah, and I, I I don't disagree. I think, you know, the the problem with one of the problems with the first Trump impeachment uh, proceeding was the, uh, how they characterized the article. Kind of, a, I think it was an abuse of office, and and so what you saw there was a defense that wait a minute, that's not an impeachable to, uh, offense. You you need a crime or something at least like a crime for it to be an impeachable offense. And this time, I think they took that head on. You know, they charged uh, incitement of an insurrection. And certainly, you know, there was no one who who argued and no one who could argue that if the former president actually did incite an insurrection, for sure, that would be an impeachable offense. Nobody argued against that proposition. So I, I, I don't I, I don't disagree with that. You know, perhaps the article could have been a little bit clearer in. Um, in, in kind of explaining why the events, you know, long before the the January sixth incident and even after were kind of relevant to the incitement, but I don't disagree with characterizing it as an, as a one count incitement of insurrection. It also allowed them to. I, mean, I could just drive yeah, home this one point, which is it allowed them to uh, they, them being the House managers to focus squarely on the six. Uh, on January 6th and all the imagery and all of the horror that was that day. Um, it, it didn't open up space for a deeper kind of more expansive defense on the president's side, which is why I think they only spent a couple of hours offering, delivering up a defense. They simply wanted to move on. Um, so in a way, in a lot of ways, it's hard to analyze these things objectively because you're right. I mean, your premise at the start was it doesn't really matter. It was a political vote. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day because they were no way going to get through a, convinc- a, a conviction given the numbers. But that being said, if we do analyze it for a second politically and legally, Ross, you're an expert in impeachment. You've actually defended many people facing impeachment hearings, including four governors. So the defense team kind of took a kitchen sink approach to their defense. They threw up everything on the wall, including defenses like this was an exercise of Trump's free speech. 
that the Senate didn't have jurisdiction to hear it because he was an ex-president, even though that issue had already been resolved by getting to the trial. They also put up due process arguments. So from your vantage point, having defended executives facing impeachment, is that the right approach? Just throw everything up there and hope something sticks? Or should you focus on one good defense? I mean, we're, we're trying to analyze this defense like it was sort of thought through. I mean, you know, remember, you know, these lawyers got hired, you know, days a week, before. maybe days just before. And, right. and yeah. And so that this was the what a defense looks like when they perceive no risk of conviction. Right, but let's it, say you were hired. Let's matter. say you were hired uh, two months before. What would have yeah. been your strategy? So the, the, the first focus is for sure the jurisdictional issue, because you say it was resolved. It was resolved by the full Senate. But then when it came time to do the actual voting, guilty or not guilty, the senators could. And you, we saw, you know, you know, sort of famously now, which with Mitch McConnell, the senators could take that into consideration again and vote not guilty. And that's that's what happened the one time uh, before a case involving an ex-official has been tried in the Senate, a case involving this uh, this former Secretary of War, William Belknap. Senate found jurisdiction, but when it came time to reach a verdict, uh, most of the senators who voted not guilty took, uh, took jurisdiction into account. So I would have focused on that. I would have uh, stayed as clear as possible away from the facts uh, and then poked holes in the prosecution's case. Ross, did you find, I mean, okay, there's, there's what you would do strategically, but would you have, um, did you find the, the, the argument persuasive? So we know, right, famously, the 120, 140 constitutional law scholars came out and said, of course, the Senate has jurisdiction. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I actually think that that issue is actually a jump ball. Um, I, 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 uh, I actually think, you know, I'm, I'm maybe 55, 45 persuaded by the argument. I think that the lawyers did a terrible job explaining it. Mitch McConnell in a Wall Street Journal editorial, I think, did a much better job explaining it. Um, and, you know, in the end, it, you know, they knew it was going to appeal to the Republicans. And so that that I think continues to be a live issue. I think I, I think it's a legitimate argument. I, I usually refuse to do debate segments on CNN because I want to be I want people to understand I'm analyzing, I'm not advocating. I made an exception for this issue because I didn't think it was getting kind of a proper airing out. I agree. And I'm actually, Tina's got one more question, but I just want to, I agree. I, I think Trump should have been convicted, but I think objectively, I don't know how you get around the idea that the constitution says a president and that's it. It seems rather simple. It doesn't say an ex-president. And until the constitution is amended to say that an ex-president, I think that's the end of the story. You could argue that it shouldn't be that way. You should argue that what he did shouldn't give him a license in the waiting days of a presidency to get off scot-free, but it says what it says. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to, uh, to debate. But I think that <laughs> there's life in that other 45%, though. I'd say that there's more life in that other 45% that, uh, that Ross identified about you know, yeah. concerns, yeah. like the, 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 the concern that um, somebody can simply resign in order to avoid not just a conviction, but a, a, a decision by the Senate that would keep them from ever being able to run for office again. They cared about that. And the fact that they did, in fact, move forward on this in the past on a number of people who previously held office. Um, yeah, it, yeah and, and we won't kind of get too deep into that. The only thing I'll say is it was it was once and the dude was, you know, acquitted, just like Trump was. And 
it, and, and I, you know, there was a lot made about, well, wait a minute, then you provide an incentive for the person to resign, you know, and, and before you can punish him. It, having done impeachments, that's what you want. What you do not want to do is provide an incentive for a really bad, really corrupt, really dangerous politician to hold on to power and be dragged out of office. You want to create the incentive where it's like, holy crap, I'm going to be impeached. I'm going to be convicted. I better get out of town. That's the incentive we want. We want to get that person out. For political reasons, though, right? The person who resigns doesn't have much of a political future. Um, and in that sense, you, I, can, I can see how you, you'd want to sort of in, encourage them to sort of take the exit when it's available to them because rising exactly. up from those after is hard to do. But that's sort of, that's about, our, you know, concerns about legacy and politics. No, but also immediacy. I mean, you got, you got somebody in charge of the nuclear codes. For sure. You think he's so yeah. dangerous, he's got to be out. And so you're going through this whole yep. long, hard process to try to get him out. You, you want to see if you can avoid that with Nixon being the, the model. So last quick question here on legal face-off. So we mentioned, um, talked about Mitch McConnell. Um, after the acquittal, he excoriated Trump, saying that he should face both civil as well as criminal prosecution. We're already starting to see some of those lawsuits being filed over the past few days. How likely is it, do you think, that he'll face liability either on the civil or criminal fronts? You want to go Pastor, first, would Professor? you like to kick that one off? <laughs> So I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I think there are so many of these and there's so many concerns about conflicts of interest and illegality that at least some of them are likely to move forward. I will say the politics of this are fraught um, because each of these individual cases has uh, some merit to them. There are real concerns about accountability and the need to hold people accountable for their past actions. In the background, well, not in the background, very much in the foreground is a larger claim that Trump has been making for the last four or five years, which is that everything is broken, everything is rigged. And to the extent that there are repeated efforts by um, Congress, by the courts to go after him and those efforts fail. That is, they don't, leave, they don't end in conviction. It, 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 it plays into this larger narrative that in fact, you know, the system is rigged against him and he will, he will try to kind of cultivate that for his own political gain. So I think um, it is, it's, it's not, I think politically as a calculus, what, how much you want to go after him or as opposed to how much you just want to make him irrelevant, let him drift off into the sunset to the extent that you can facilitate that. Um, it's, it's a hard call. Yeah. And I also don't have a crystal ball. I'm not a psychic, but I play one on podcasts. And so my psychic powers are telling me there's almost a 0% chance Trump is going to be charged criminally unless something new comes out. I just don't see it, you know, incitement of insurrection is a super hard charge to make uh, criminally. You've got first amendment issues on the criminal side. Uh, and you know, the notion that the, the Biden DOJ is going to want to take this on, uh, I, I, I'd be very surprised. And on, you know, on the civil cases, Trump is, if, if nothing else, an expert in civil litigation. He knows when to hold him. He knows when to fold him. He settles cases. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to be very interested, actually, to see what happens with the congressional investigations to see if there's anything more that comes out, which is totally possible. But based on what we know today, I think I think a reckoning for Trump, Trump is unlikely. 
Speaking of podcasts, you can find more of Professor Howell's work by searching Not Another Politics Podcast. Also, be sure to check out his new book, Presidents, Populisms, and the Crisis of Democracy. And please direct all your hate tweets to Ross Garber on Twitter, at Ross Garber. We thank you both very much for joining us. Stay with us as we've got more of the Legal Faceoff Podcast. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. The Biden administration reportedly is taking steps to consider changes to the Supreme Court. And with that, we bring in our next guest, Aaron Belkin, a director of Take Back the Court and the Palms Center, also a political science professor at San Francisco State University. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, Aaron, we'd like to set the stage for our conversation today. Uh, you are the director of Take Back the Court, which is an organization that is committed to informing the public about the danger that the Supreme Court poses to democracy. Uh, back in 2016, you said that the Supreme Court was stolen. Can you tell us why? Well, uh, in modern American history, it's always been the case that when a vacancy has opened on the court, the president has filled that vacancy. And in 2016, when the late uh, Justice Scalia died, uh, Mitch McConnell blocked uh, President Obama from filling that seat. If President Obama had filled that seat, the court, after a, uh, a generation of uh, being a conservative and I would say arch conservative court, um, would have become a progressive court. But Mitch McConnell prevented that from happening because the court itself has become part of the GOP's recipe for winning elections uh, by enabling voter suppression and gerrymandering. So so Mitch McConnell depends on the Supreme Court to win elections. That's why he stole the court. Yeah, Professor, completely, you know, it's still hard to get your head around the idea that McConnell created this, you know, seemingly February exception that a president in the last year, I mean, Obama was in office for, for many, many months when he nominated Merrick Garland, yet he turns around and supports Trump's uh, rush of air, you know, J- Justice Comey when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. It's completely, you know, I think the history books will look back on that and just, and just, you know, rightfully assail McConnell for the hypocrisy. But that being said, to your point, now we have a President Biden who has talked about some reforms to the court through a commission. Uh, the commission was in the news last week. It looks like it's forming. Talk to us about that commission, uh, what we will see come out, out of it, uh, in your opinion. The Biden commission has the chance to do something important, and that is to help explain to the public 
the danger of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been targeting everyday Americans, workers, women, people of color for a generation and uh, at the behest of corporate interests and plutocrats' interests and, frankly, the Republican Party's interests. Um, and the commission could tell that story. And the commission could also underscore the urgency of reforming the court if Congress and the administration are to have any chance whatsoever of saving democracy and addressing the crisis we face, like climate and gun violence. So the court has to be reformed if we're going to have a chance of fixing those problems, and the Biden commission has a chance to tell that story. However, we also know that commissions are sometimes places where ideas go to die, and it is particularly problematic to take six months uh, when there's very little time on the clock to study a question whose answer is already known. So we're hopeful that the Biden commission does its work quickly and underscores the danger of the court, but that's yet to be seen. So Aaron, just taking um, a few of the reforms that are and suggestions that are on the table right now with regard to the commission, um, in terms of the Supreme Court, um, and we know you feel pretty strongly about, about these, um, creating term limits for the justices as well as expanding the size of the court. Um, why don't you tell us what your thoughts are on this and how likely it is that this commission would be able to get these types of reforms through? Well, the commission is not going to enact any reforms. So the commission right. is just going to make recommendations to Congress. And we don't know what the commission is going to recommend. We know that there are some commissioners who have been skeptical of judicial reform and others who have been open to it. What I can say is that you were asking about the merits of the different reform proposals. There's no reform except for court expansion that would immediately rebalance the court would immediately undo the theft of the court from 2016, but that would also give uh, Congress and the administration a chance to address the crises that we face as a country. And so given that there's so little time on the clock, court expansion, Supreme Court expansion is the one judicial reform strategy that enables the administration to address the crises that we are facing now. So, Professor, it sounds like Take Back the Court is in favor of expansion of the number of Supreme Court justices. That's right. We, we believe that the court should be expanded by at least four justices. So how do you answer, obviously, the critics who say that that's not consistent with our values and consistent with the way we've done things? Obviously, the Constitution does not say how many Supreme Court justices you have to have, but Republicans would say that this would be an effort to stack the odds in their favor and do something that's contrary to the norms of our judicial system, at least for the last 50 years. Yeah, I mean, the size of the Supreme Court has changed six times in American history. Mitch McConnell changed the size of the court to eight uh, in order to steal it in 2016. And he said that if Hillary Clinton uh, had won the election, uh, uh, he and other Republican senators said that if, if Clinton had won the election, they would have frozen the court's size at eight until she was out of office so that a Republican could, could fill that vacancy. Um, look, stealing the court was a tremendously consequential violation of norms. Uh, democracies cannot function when courts are stolen, period, full stop. To designate the undoing of a norm violation itself as a norm violation is to incentivize more bad behavior. Rebalancing the court, restoring the court, undoing the Republican theft is consistent with 
judicial politics and judicial reform going back to the beginning of our country. But more importantly, it undoes what Mitch McConnell did in 2016. If you allow that theft to remain the last word, it just encourages more bad behavior and more norm, and norm, norm, break, more norm breaking. And most importantly, we know that the system has been rigged through gerrymandering, the destruction of campaign finance limitations, voter suppression. These are all problems that the court itself has cemented in place. The only way to undo those problems is to pass a law like HR1. But if you pass that law, the Supreme Court's going to rip that law in pieces. And so if you want to give HR1 a fighting chance of enduring, you have to undo the theft of the court and expand the Supreme Court. Professor, just a minute left. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, because prior to San Francisco State, you taught at UC Santa Barbara and you taught a class or actually at your current, I'm sorry, in your current position, you teach a class on delusion and paranoia in American politics. Talk about right course at the right time. What are you going to do now with Trump gone? The entire premise of the class is gone. Um, no, actually, the premise of the class was established before Trump because. Wow, what a gift. See, well, you could see the relationship between willful ignorance and paranoia in Republican politics going back a generation. I mean, you know, people talk about the QAnon conspiracies as kind of crazy talk now, you know, Jewish space lasers. Is that really any different or uh, any worse than lying about climate change, which is argue arguably going to lead to the end of civilization? I mean, the Republican Party has been stitching lies and misinformation and willful ignorance into its positions for a generation because what they want to do is unpopular. They want to help plutocrats and corporations and the public doesn't want that. And so they have to lie about what they do. And that is Donald Trump and Trumpism are the symptoms of that. They're not the cause of that. So no, my course is uh, just as it was during Trump and just as it was before Trump. You can follow Aaron Belkin on Twitter at Aaron Belkin. Also find more of his work at AaronBelkin.org. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so, so much, and uh, look forward to talking again. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Our next segment pulls at the heartstrings of both hosts in Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini as Bruce Springsteen was arrested for driving while intoxicated back in November. With that, we bring in James Seplowitz, a criminal defense attorney at Foy and Seplowitz in New Jersey and New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The devastating story, James, because all on the Springsteen message boards that I'm on, people have been all over the story since it broke about a week and a half ago. So we're, we're confused because we haven't seen all the information yet. The initial court hearing hasn't happened yet. But we've heard reports from Bruce Blue, a point zero two, which we all know isn't close to the legal standard, to he had two shots of tequila he had an open bottle. He was glassy-eyed. He smelled of alcohol. He failed field sobriety test. What do we know as of uh, this time as to what happened? Well, I'm getting just as inf much uh, information as you are. I haven't read any of the actual police reports. I've read a lot of the news reports. 
I've seen conflicting information, whether he had one shot or two shots. Uh, so it would be helpful to see what's in the reports. And of course, if there's a video, that's usually the best evidence as to what he really appeared like and what really happened. So I don't know yet if there is a video from any of the patrol cars involved. Can you explain the difference in New Jersey between suspicion of DWI sufficient to make a stop versus enough probable cause for an arrest? So yes, in New Jersey, and of course this happened on federal property, so it's going to be in a federal court, uh, what I call a glorified municipal court uh, in New Jersey. But through the Assimilative Crime Act, uh, I believe they will apply New Jersey law so uh, the, the penalties he'll be facing would be for a New Jersey DWI. As far as a reasonable suspicion and probable cause, the reasonable suspicion is a slightly lower level than probable cause. You need reasonable suspicion just to do the initial motor vehicle stop. So the officers have to believe he either committed a motor vehicle infraction or a criminal offense in order to warrant that stop. And I think it sounds like they're just alleging they observed him drinking what they believe to be alcohol as that offense to warrant them to stop him in the first place. Uh, James, you mentioned this federal court. So this happened in a park in New Jersey, but on federal land. And a magistrate judge will hear the case in what's called an enclave court. I'll admit I've never heard of that. And I've read something about it. It seems like a mix of the Star Wars cantina and, you know, maybe night courts from TV. What are we looking at in an enclave, enclave court? Well, the case will be prosecuted by an assistant United States attorney, so a federal prosecutor who regularly would handle way more serious cases. So it is prosecuted by the attorney's U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, but it it doesn't run like your typical federal court and the types of cases they see. It, it actually, in my opinion, runs more like, as I said, a glorified municipal court. So in New Jersey, we have municipal courts. Each town court handles typically a DWI offense, because in New Jersey, it's a motor vehicle offense and not a crime. And it would usually just go to the local town court with the local town prosecutor and not the county prosecutor. If you were defending the boss, what would you do, particularly as it relates to fighting the reliability of the field sobriety tests? Well, after I have him sign a few of my CDs, uh, I would then uh, address the field sobriety tests. And there are a few things that occurred here. It's my understanding, although, again, I haven't seen the police reports, that they performed the horizontal gaze nystagmus test on him, which is the eye test to check if there's nystagmus in the eyes. Uh, typically, especially if there's a video, my experience is in more than half of the cases I see, the officers don't even, don't even perform that test correctly. So it calls into question the liability and the results of those tests as to whether that's indicative of someone being under the influence of alcohol. In addition, there could be a number of conditions that cause nystagmus of the eyes. So we have to inquire about his medical background and whether there's anything that could cause that as well. Uh, as far as the balance tests that they had him perform, since he's 65 or older, I believe the boss is 71 years old, uh, those tests are called into question because uh, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which regulates those tests, has determined that if you're 65 or older, you really shouldn't be performing those type of balance tests and they should go to alternate tests, which I don't think they did here. I wonder, James, if the, uh, the if we did have video of it, if the counting backwards test would sound like, oh, one, two, three, oh, <laughs> Um, last question here on Legal Face Off. Listen, this is the boss. He's New Jersey's favorite son. What cop, what prosecutor would actually, what judge would actually throw the book at, at Bruce? Listen, DWI is a serious crime. We all know that. But, you know, if it was only a .02 and by some accounts the officer offered him the shot, do we really think this is going to trial? Do we really see a conviction of New Jersey's favorite son? 
I don't think so. Uh, although I doubt the officer actually offered him the shot, but that's a good one. I, I think that with an O2, it would be very hard for the prosecutor to, to, to sustain a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a case like this. Of course, they can go under both prongs, the per se prong, which they don't meet, and what they call the observations prong with the general demeanor, operation of the vehicle, performance on field sobriety tests. But given the issues related to that, it would still be difficult to prove the case. And I still think the O2 can be used to try to rebut that as well. So I doubt this will result in a DUI or DWI conviction for the boss. And uh, I hope it doesn't. Um, you know, we're, we're all hopeful that, uh, especially if we're your fans of Bruce Springsteen, that that's not going to happen. And I think he will be vindicated because the, the O2 really does prove, yeah, he had one shot. Maybe it wasn't the most responsible thing to do, but certainly he wasn't to the level of intoxication. Nobody got hurt. There's no indication it even affected his ability to operate a motor vehicle because I don't think they saw him drive erratic, doing any erratic driving. I think they just stopped him immediately after seeing him take the shot and starting up his motorcycle. Well, I don't want to make light of a DWI, but at least he wasn't driving his pink Cadillac in the back streets. There we James, go. Thank- he wasn't and, driving and, a stolen car, Joe, either. And I think on the HGN test, he was blinded by the light, but we won't go there either. Yeah, Hopefully he won't be working on the highway on a chain gate. We could go on for hours. On <laughs> well, he was born in the USA, so he's got constitutional rights. <laughs> James, thank you so much for joining us. All right, guys. My pleasure. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Our next topic here on Legal Faceoff brings us to the lies behind vanilla products. And we bring in our latest guest, attorney Spencer Sheehan of Sheehan & Associates. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Did you say lies, Joe? Lies, that's what I've been told. Let's say alleged. Let's make sure we say alleged lies, because as a uh, defense attorney who represents a lot of class action lawsuits, I will we'll say they're alleged. But Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. And we, we really appreciate you taking the time. We know that you filed a lot of lawsuits, like Joe said, alleging that various companies were deceptively advertising their products as containing vanilla. We actually covered the story, I think, in our last legal face off. So tell us what what's motivating you to go after these companies alleging that they contain vanilla and why you think they don't? 
Well, you asked what's motivating me. And surely I won't say uh, money. I will say um, that it's, uh, you know, something that's important to uh, consumers, the, uh, you know, the presence of the natural uh, ingredients and natural flavors and the avoidance of artificial flavors. But also on, uh, you know, an intellectual level, I enjoy uh, the the research and the analysis and the legal arguments. So it's All right, not so explain. I, I'm sorry, you can finish. Well, it's not so much because I, I care about, you know, the taste personally of vanilla. Okay, so explain to our listeners and viewers exactly what you're alleging. What are the company, who are the companies? What are they doing wrong in your opinion? Well, the companies include the biggest uh, companies like Nestle, uh, Unilever, uh, ConAgra, all of them that have many sub-brands, uh, that use uh, vanilla and have vanilla flavor products. And what they're doing is using a small amount of real vanilla and then using artificial vanilla, which is called the vanillin. And they're not labeling it as artificial vanilla. So when I go and I buy, let's say, vanilla yogurt or vanilla ice cream, uh, and it says the word vanilla on it, your lawsuits allege that that's deceptive because they're not actually using vanilla beans. Is that your allegation? Well, they're using some vanilla beans, but the main, you know, vanilla taste is from artificial vanillin, which is, you know, synthetic. Okay. And, you know, that's where the vanilla flavor is coming from. So what is the, I think the obvious question is, what does the FDA say about this? Because obviously the FDA regulates what food companies can put in their food and can advertise as being in their food. So what does the FDA say about whether you can describe the products like they're describing? It says unequivocally that you can't. And I have all of these, uh, you know, regulatory letters and correspondence, and I've included them all publicly available. And they're quite clear that where vanilla flavoring comes from, you know, vanillin, you know, you have to call it artificial. Okay. And how prevalent is this? I mean, how often do you think or does your research show the use of vanilla uh, in consumer products is being used deceptively? I would say probably in about um, maybe 90% of uh, the instances. Okay. And have you filed, uh, what's the status of your lawsuits? How many have you filed? Are you, are you suing 90% of the companies? Or I assume that's, that would be a, a lot of lawsuits. So what's the status of the litigation? Who are you going after? Tell us about that. Well, um, trying to do as many as possible. And uh, I have, you know, by uh, some estimates, a, upwards of 120 cases that I filed, not active anymore. Um, but, you know, we're going after everybody who has, uh, you know, products uh, and labels that are deceptive. Obviously, some are more deceptive than others, and some are, you know, relatively insignificant. So, you know, you can't, you know, get every, everybody, and that's not the goal. So the status, uh, actually, we just got a positive decision uh, yesterday on one of our cases, but you know, we've gotten a lot more negative decisions. I'm not going to lie, you know, but I'm not, you know, looking at this as keeping score. Oh, you know, we have seven negative decisions, two pod. I can't, you know, have that sort of attitude. And the po for success. The positive decision you're referring to, is that a, uh, a motion or is it an actual uh, verdict or what, what do you uh, Verdict. That's a word that class action lawyers, uh, we don't hear much often, right? It's almost like how duels, you know, are no longer exists. So I've not heard of a verdict, uh, you know, recently, 
but it was just a, um, a decision at the pleading stage, which I guess is, look, you'd be happy to take every, um, you know, victory, whatever you call it, when you can get them, because, you know, we realize that, you know, it's challenging. And this was in a, on a case yesterday in California. So, uh, Spencer, uh, the defendants in your cases, among them Nestle, Dr. Pepper, um, have answered your allegations by saying that the lawsuit is frivolous, that or these lawsuits are frivolous, that these, as you referenced earlier, is just an attempt to you know make some money, and also that their products are labeled in compliance with the law, and also that they provide plenty of uh, information to consumers. How have you answered these allegations? Well, uh, one, um, obviously they're not uh, frivolous. Uh, two, the information that they provide about, uh, you know, whatever they say is, well, we tell consumers about the vanilla in the product because the ingredient list says natural flavors. But that is almost, uh, you know, not, that's not correct because natural flavors only tells consumers that, the flavoring ingredients may contain vanilla, so that's not correct. And uh, third, they don't comply with the FDA regulations. So uh, that's how we answer it. Spencer, last question on legal face-off. You know, class actions, um, I, like I mentioned earlier, as a defense counsel representing lots, lots of large corporations, I fight them all the time. But, you know, to be fair and to be objective, which is what we always do on the show, class actions uh, historically have resulted in some really positive changes for consumer products, you know, in the course of legal history. So, you know, a lot of people view class actions as in it only for the attorneys, that the attorneys are the ones making money and that the actual members of the class only see a minuscule amount. We all get those, you know, letters or emails and says, oh, congratulations, you're a member of the class and here's, you know, 10 cents. But maybe you could speak to our listeners and viewers historically about the benefit to consumers from some class action litigation in the past, things we take for granted every day, like seatbelts, like airbags. I mean, without certain types of lawsuits, we wouldn't enjoy those kind of protections as consumers. And again, I'm not advocating for a lot of these lawsuits. I defend a lot of them. But to be fair, our listeners should know that there is a, pl a time and a place for, for this kind of litigation. Uh, you're exactly right. Um, and you won't expect me to um, agree with some of what you said. We all get those notices and letters and we throw them out because who wants 10 cents? It's just a waste of my time. Uh, in general, you know, these cases are not going to, you know, make consumers rich, but they are really the only check that we have to, um, you know, curb some of the excesses. And, you know, in the situations like you described, seatbelts, uh, safe drinking water, uh, you know, uh, maybe a cleaner environment and yes, real vanilla in your uh, vanilla ice cream. So that's uh, what, you know, it's not quite on the level of seatbelts, but, you know, we're still doing our part. Yeah, but a very non-vanilla topic here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. Attorney Sheehan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Rich and Joe. to our last but certainly not least segment here on the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. It's the Legal Grab Bag. And our two guests today, Dane Neal, a regular voice at WGN Radio. You can find him on Twitter at Dane Tonimo. And uh, he combines both his love for 
racing and food all on the WGN airwaves. And along with Dane, we have Amy Rubenstein, an attorney at DLA Piper. So thank you very much for both of you joining us. And Rich, we'll get right to the uh, Gorilla Glue Girl. We typically start with topics that stick. And here we are again. There you go, Joe. King of the king of the segue, king of the pun. <laughs> it's amazing how you come up with these. So the Gorilla Glue Girl, uh, Tesca Brown, who we've all now seen. She's had millions of views, 21 million times as of Tuesday, her TikTok video was seen. Of course, this is the woman who decided that when she ran out of hairspray, she would reach for what was closest, in this case, Gorilla Glue, put in her hair, shock of all shocks. It stuck, and her hair became stuck for 30 days. She complained to the company. They told her to use some rubbing alcohol. That didn't work. It caused it to exacerbate, and she went to the hospital. Now, there is, of course, the inevitable discussion, Tina, of suing Gorilla Glue, and I'll tell you, I defend a lot of companies against very frivolous lawsuits, which I think this would be one. And you know what my very legalistic, very complicated defense to this one would be, Tina, when I stood up before the jury? It, it really harkens back to age-old jurisprudence. It's a little hard to explain in a podcast. I would say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's effing glue. And then I would sit down. And that would be the end of it. It's glue. What did she expect would happen? Tina, what are your thoughts? I'm not defending her, believe me. Um, you know, her her response to that is, well, the label said you can't put it on skin, you can't put it in your eyes, you can't put it on clothing, but no one ever said anything about hair. Yeah. Uh, last time I checked, your scalp is skin, but, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm being technical here. So I agree with you, Rich. I mean, this is one of the more frivolous suits I think we've talked about on the show for a while. It's just really sad. I, I found this story to be incredibly sad. Um, and now I think we all know the power of Gorilla Glue. Um, so in case we're looking for a strong glue, I think that we know what some of the choices are out there. Amy, the, the label also doesn't say don't put it in a needle and inject it into your bloodstream. Would you as a juror think that, well, Gorilla Glue should be held liable because of that? No, of course not. I, I'm with both you and Tina on this, that this would fall into the frivolous lawsuit bucket. I do have to add, though, that women, and I could see Miss Brown's photos and her video, use glues in various places. She clearly uses an eyelash adhesive to glue on eyelashes. She clearly uses some sort of nail glue to glue on her fingernails. And I shouldn't exclude men from this. Men use glue for toupees and other things. So the idea of using glue on hair mm. isn't as far out as people are giving her credit for. And the hairspray that she was using was called got to be glue because it was such a strong hairspray. So I think it's a frivolous lawsuit. But like Tina said, I feel sorry for her. Okay, good. Well, that's a good point. Dane, uh, this made it to SNL inevitably, and the SNL take on it was uh, a law firm talking about defending similar lawsuits. So there is an argument to be made. Tina raises labels. The label argument is a good one because, you know, to, to Tina's point, when a company is aware of a potential defect or a dangerous condition and they warn you of it on the label, then there's some allegation that, you know, that's a viable allegation that uh, despite the warning, the danger still happened. But in this case, you know, there was no such label and it wasn't meant to be used in this in this way. 
Well, I, I think what you've got here is I think he's got a little bit of, of room. View disclaimer down to the lowest common denominator. That's one of the things that you look for. And I think that she's got a little bit of wiggle room. Maybe brought up other uses where you've got in this world of like hacks and different ways that people are being resourceful with what it is that they do. And part of Gorilla Glue's brand, and granted, this was in the realm of holding things in place, is that when I mean, you look at the commercial, you can glue anything. You could glue your, your cat, you could glue your coffee cup, you could glue the table, the chair, or whatever. And so they kind of put it out there that it's got a real versatile range of uses. And like I said, you know, it's holding things in place. People use glue in other kind of personal hygiene ways. I think this may be the one that really sets maybe a little bit of a standard where, you know, like they do with the, you know, we always hear about McDonald's and the hot coffee thing, right? But this was not in, in, you know, an accidental use of it. She didn't have her, her hair melted by the fumes, right? This was used sort of in the manner it usually would be. I think that there's something to look at here. The Permaseal guy better be careful because that guy's next. You, <laughs> you got to be able to use Permaseal in your hair, right? Sure. Joe? <laughs> I, I, I would never try that. I, you know, the guy who's always, he's inevitably in a boat in the swampland somewhere that he cut in half and he attached with Permaseal. Oh, that guy, that's the rubber Flex Seal. Flex Seal, Flex yeah. Seal, that guy. <laughs> I love that guy. I love that guy. I just want to be somewhere in the Everglades with a, a half-cut boat and be able to use Flex Seal oh, to save myself. He's amazing. Rich, well, you've well, clearly never had such a bad hair day that you true. accidentally reach for the Gorilla Glue spray instead of your hairspray. You've got to be more sympathetic to those of you who have such dilemmas. <laughs> well, the Gorilla Glue girl uh, is lucky that it just damaged her scalp and it wasn't toxic. Uh, speaking of toxic, Britney Spears is probably going to be circulating news outlets for a while after the document really exposed her relationship with her father. Yeah, last week, Joe, and I'm just getting whiplash over that segue, but that was a great one. Um, Last week, a judge in Los Angeles ruled for the first time, really, we've covered the story a couple of times, that ruled really in her favor. Uh, as we know, Brittany has been under the auspices of a conservatorship that her father has run for many years. Conservatorship means that she has ceded control uh, over her personal affairs, her medical care, her finances to her father. And she's been trying to get him removed for many years, as has the Free Britney movement online, right? Massive movement. All of our fans are protesting. And the judge said last week, not that her father, um, Jamie Spears, should be removed, but at least that there should be a bank instituted, an objective third-party bank put in as a co-conservator. So there's a great documentary that a lot of us have seen on uh, New York Times Presents um, that really talks about how this conservatorship in the, in, the, in, the, in the eyes of most of her fans is a joke, right? The father's in it for secondary gain. He's in it for the money, according to these allegations. And he only came into Britney's life really much later when she was a success. He wasn't part of her life earlier. So I think the Free Britney movement has, it's really interesting because the Free Britney movement has really put a lot of momentum behind the judge's decision and it shows the power of social media in many ways to maybe change what's going on in the courts. Tina, have you seen the documentary yet? I have not. I definitely want to see it. I think that is probably the most interesting part of the story. I mean, obviously, we want things to turn out well for Brittany, but um, the power of social media, I find it fascinating. All the people who are following this, supporting Brittany, um, the folks that are dressing up like Brittany and showing up at the courthouse, I find particularly fascinating 
Um, I'd like to know how they find so much time to, to do these sorts of things. Well, let's ask, let's ask one directly. Dane, how do you find so much time to go as Brittany in the Cobra outfit from, from that video? How do, you, how do you find time to do that and get to L.A. and all that stuff? Hey, just the power of fandom, right? You know, you get something out there that resonates with people. They'll do crazy things. I don't know how this is even an issue I mean, because do they do something shouldn't there be some kind of basic rudimentary test to decide whether she's a danger to herself or others and or that she's competent to handle her own checking account should they i mean for lottery winners you always hear those stories two years later they've blown it all should there be some sort of you know oversight on what it is that they do and, and to try to control the flow of money from them i mean this was back when she was 20 and i think they made a case for it because of the whether it's the mental issues or some of the drug issues but now I mean, how can this be so hard for her just to go to court and say, hey, I'm okay. I should run my world. Yeah, well, she certainly, that's a great point. And Amy, she certainly, her attorneys have certainly presented evidence over the years that she is competent. But, you know, the judges generally err on the side of keeping the conservator. Um, and usually, I think the documentary pointed out that there hasn't been many cases of a conservatee, which she is actually petitioning the court successfully to change it. So it seems like for better or worse, once you're in, it's really hard to get out of a conservatorship. And generally these are for older people who aren't able to make decisions on their own. So usually it's seen as a good thing, but I think Dane raises a great point, which all of the Britney fans say, which is she's been through successful shows. She had a, 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 a running show in Vegas for many years, generating you know millions and millions of dollars. You can't do that and also not be in control of yourself. Right. I mean, it's the conservatee's obligation and burden of proof in court to show that she can manage her own affairs. This is a woman who has been managing two children, a more than full time job, everything that goes along with that. And we don't know what the other issues are that are behind the scenes in the court papers. We can't see what um you know, mental concerns there may be or addiction concerns there may be. But what we can see is this. Anyone who's been litigating an issue like this for 13 years and can still do all of those other things that she's doing, that's really a testament in my mind to her sanity because having personal litigation for 13 years could really make anyone insane, especially in California courts. That's a great point. We move from the queen of pop to the king of CNN, Larry King. And recently after his death, Tina was uh, known that his last will was actually handwritten right before his latest divorce. Yes. Well, and um, we've talked about wills and lack of wills often on this show over the years. And it's a good thing that Larry did this. Um, it's not perfect, as we'll get into in a moment, but Back in October of 2019, um, as Joe mentioned, Larry hand wrote what his intentions were as his last will and testament was for his estate to go to his then five children. It was a couple of months after he had filed for divorce from his seventh wife. And I think he wanted to make sure that his intentions were very clear, even if it was through a few sentences handwritten about what he wanted his, um, his plans for his estate to be. What's unfortunate is that he lost two of his five children subsequent to this handwritten will um, within about a month of each other, about a year ago. And so now there are three children left and the eldest is actually seeking to be appointed as the administrator of his estate. 
Um, and my guess is that the court will do everything they can to make sure that his intentions are granted. And given that he was in the middle of divorcing his last wife, my guess is that it's probably not going to be um, all that hotly contested, but it'll be interesting to see. Sometimes these cases have a lot of surprises. Topeka, hello. <laughs> it's my Larry King. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, if you look at the... Uh, the hand, you know, it should be noted that you can change your will. You can do it by hand. You can do it on your deathbed. You could take out people who were previously in it. All that stuff is legal. I mean, the courts bend over backwards to adhere to, you know, your own wishes. And no matter what uh, his ex-wife says and no matter how many times she tries to contest it, he has the right to take her out. And like I said, to do it in hand. Right. I mean, all that stuff is legal. The question is you know, whether, whether it is in fact his writing, I think, I don't think anyone's, you know, disagreeing that, that, that it is his, you know, he scratched off. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. He scratched off. I want 20% of my funds to be divided equally among my children to a hundred percent. So, you know, like you said, Tina, this, every time a celebrity with some estate dies, there's always fights with the will. We see this ongoing with Prince's estate who has a lot more money. Sadly, Larry King didn't leave, you know, a lot of money, which is something we see all the time too, with celebrities, they are often uh, not as wealthy on their on, uh, the end of their lives as as you would think. But um, Dane, what do you think? Should the uh, should the should the wife get a part of this? Uh, you know, you know, I don't think so. I think with the kids, though, it, one one of the things makes me consider. You could say, okay, I want hundred percent of the assets to go to a certain group, and if there's two less members of the group, you just I think common sense just divvy it up with the remaining ones. However, I was wondering, I wanted to get your thoughts is. When you look at maybe the heirs of those, is there any kind of transferable uh, situation with the, the kids that passed away? He obviously intended for them and they've got extended family or kids or other family. Is there any kind of claim there where the, you know, the, the heirs or, you know, children or other family members related to the children that died that say, hey, I'll take their part because I represent them now? I mean, that's all that's all that's all relevant if there's no will. At the end of the day, when there's a will. And it was done by someone who was of sound mind and body, to use the cliche. Then that's what that's what governs. When there's no will, that's when all these other questions come in, and and you know probate, probate courts decide who's in. But I guess my real question before we move on is who gets the suspenders, right? I mean, that's that's what I would want to know. I mean, uh, imagine the suspender closet, Joe. Well, you know uh, what they just did with all of Alex Trebek's ties. They donated them to. Uh, a poor community so that they could use them for job interviews and things like that. So maybe they could go that route. Just what every, every, so everyone who's struggling to make ends meet needs is, <laughs> is, is Larry King's old dirty suspenders. <laughs> no, you show up, show up to the job interview in those and it's a lot, right? You know, exactly. <laughs> Good morning. Hello. You know, we're going to see a lot of Larry King costumes come Halloween too. Uh, moving on to Ah, we can we can stick with the the Halloween aspect. Stranger Things was a a good creepy show on on Netflix, and uh, during one of the the viewing parties during COVID, there was a guy dressed up as the Demogorgon, and he's not too happy about the conditions, Rich, that he was put in. Pretty impressed that you nailed that name. You must be a Stranger oh, Things guy. I am. I am. The Demogorgon. I had to ask my twelve year old daughter who this guy was. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's only one of, I think, some... Is there more than one Demogorgon, uh, Jim? Uh, I, I guess so, yeah. There's there's one Demogorgon. He's like the, the main evil guy. He's got some little 
little guys that are called demo dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a hybrid between an alien dandelion weird creature thing. I, I really don't know how to explain it. Kind of sorry I asked in retrospect, to be honest. But <laughs> as, as we move on, the question is, I guess the bigger question here is, should employers be exposed to liability for opening during the pandemic? On the one hand, right, we want to encourage employers to employ people because the economy is, you know, in shambles in many ways because of the pandemic. People aren't working. There's companies closing all the time. We want things to get back to normal. And here we are with a uh, with Netflix, who's one of the defendants in a lawsuit because they put people back to work. Now, obviously, you want to put people back to work in a safe condition. Um, but the allegation here is that they didn't. And uh, that's why the lawsuit is filed. It's kind of interesting that he filed the way he did. He filed a complaint with the California uh, OSHA. Uh, I defend a lot of workers' compensation suits, and I'm defending a lot of COVID claims where employees are alleging that they got COVID from work and that their employer was not following proper safety protocols. So, you know, we'll see a lot of these lawsuits, obviously, right? One thing you could you could count on, Tina, is that employers will be sued for a variety of things. But what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I thought it was, as you said, pretty interesting how it was pled. Um, And yeah, at the end of the day, the employers have to create a a safe work environment in order to have people come back. And this is a debate that we had, um, you know, within the last couple of episodes we've done about how, for example, do you go back to work safely when you've got COVID still um, running rampant and just balancing OSHA with trying to run a business and all the other issues I thought it was interesting. I mean, the whole claim of carbon monoxide poisoning, um, it, it was it was very interesting. I mean, I think that, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, they do say that they've had no positive COVID cases um, since they started doing the, this performance. So I, I think, you know, this is a unique set of circumstances here. I'm not sure that they really foresaw that it was going to be like a carbon monoxide issue. Um, but it's definitely something that they have to be considering, given that they've created this interesting work environment where, given the way in which people are participating, they're doing it from their cars. Yeah. yeah. Amy, the Wall Street Journal earlier this week read an article to discussing COVID claims, COVID litigation, where employees are alleging that they developed the, um, the COVID from work. And the article's focus was on how difficult that is to prove. In fact, they quoted uh, an attorney from Chicago who I do a lot of cases uh, against, and he said he was surprised at how many employers were denying these claims. Well, guess what? We are denying them. I, I represent a lot of large employers who are denying these claims, not out of malice, but because it's so difficult to prove, given the nature of COVID, that you got it from work, right? How are you going to prove that it developed because of work versus everywhere else in the world that you could possibly contract it. That, that's exactly right, Rich. I mean, the, the burden of proof there to show that the circumstances of your employment caused your COVID is going to be a very tough hurdle to overcome. In this situation, there were um, regulations put in place by the union that it's my understanding were being followed So if there were regulations in place by the union that were being followed and he was showing up for work, I I don't know what kind of a claim he would have here. And now it seems like it's morphed into a retaliatory discharge claim, which is a totally different burden than the initial complaint that he had, which was being put in 
unsafe work conditions. Moving on to the story of the Central Park Karen. And Tina, this is actually, it seems like a, a story that kind of fizzled out, but it comes out with a progressive resolution. Yeah, so everybody remembers back last May, the uh, the video that went viral, Central Park Karen um, with her dog in Central Park accusing a bird watcher named Christian Cooper of trying to threaten her life. Um, it was really very outrageous and happening around the same time as so much other disruption and conflict in the country, racial and otherwise. And so we all remember that after this video went viral, she was fired pretty quickly afterwards. Um, she briefly lost custody of her dog. Um, she was criminally charged. And um, the progressive solution, as Joe mentioned, was for her to complete a program addressing racial bias. And because she actually didn't have a criminal background, um, the case ended up getting dismissed against her last week. Um, the, th the thinking behind this was that it's similar to a plea bargain. Um, have there be some sort of a community healing restorative justice solution rather than escalating it. Um, Christian Cooper decided that he didn't want to cooperate with prosecutors and said she's already paid a steep price with all the publicity as well as losing her job and whatnot. So he just and he said, you know, I feel like this is piling on if we bring anything more upon her than what she's already been through. So um, very interesting turn of develop, you know, turn of events. But, um, you know, I all I can hope is that we don't hear anything more from from her. Of, of uh, CPK, so to speak, Central Park. Yeah. <laughs> Jane, Jane, I've never heard of someone losing temporary custody of a dog. I wonder if that dog is like a pariah in the dog community. He must he must have to unlearn years and years of, of racism by CPK. Yeah. At the dog park, he's like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear it. You know, I have yeah. nothing to do with it. Well, and because it was a non-dog related, you know, offense, unless they figured that she was yeah. just so toxic in general, that even the dog is probably right, a, like, a potential what's victim. The, what, what's, the, what's the causation there between her <laughs> racist comments in a, a, of a bird watcher and taking away her dog for a while? Well, know. the original the original issue was that her dog was not on a leash. And that's why right, Mr. Right, Cooper right. approached her. So she was actually being a an improper dog owner. And why was she not charged for having the unleashed dog? So, yeah. so I guess, right, she was going to be putting the dog in potentially volatile situations in the future. So until we resolve that, let's get the dog you know, in a safe zone. Right. That's it. Yeah. Hopefully the dog is now no longer racist is all I can say. <laughs> so, Did it go to counseling with her? Yeah, one would hope. One would hope. Well, speaking of leashes, I'm sure some people think this one's too long. Others think probably it's too short. But former President Trump and lawyer Rudy Giuliani are being accused of violating the Ku Klux Klan Act by trying to interfere with the Electoral College votes, Tina. Yeah, so this suit was filed uh, just this week. It's the first um, civil suit stemming from the Capitol riots on January 6th. Um, Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson um, was the one who's behind this. Um, he is represented by the um, NAACP and Cone Milstein, a law firm. Um, and what, they're, what he's alleging is a violation of the Ku Klux Klan Act, which dates back, I think, to the 19th century. Um, and it's a pretty rare law that allows civil suits 
against folks who are using force, intimidation, or threat to prevent officials from upholding the duties of their office. And the allegations are that not only is Trump liable in his personal capacity because he acted outside the scope of his official duties, but also that through the acts on January 6th, um, that the congressmen were not able to pursue um, voting and counting the electoral college votes. So in addition to Giuliani and Trump, um, we also have uh, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who are also um, named as defendants. So it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's it's an interesting use of a really old law. I mean, I think it's going nowhere. We just had two impeachment scholars talking about the likelihood of Trump facing criminal and civil liability. And one of them said civilly, you know, he's got so many lawyers and there's no one better at hiring and probably firing lawyers and, by the way, not paying lawyers than Trump. So he will inevitably fight these and probably successfully. But listen, I think it's good. I think, uh, you know, um, using any law you can to go after what I think was, you know, reprehensible criminal behavior is, is the right approach, but probably not going too far. Uh, Amy, what, what do, you th- do you think about Giuliani though? I mean, so we've got Trump who obviously, you know, Trump is Trump, but we've also got these right wing groups and we've got Giuliani. So. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 I, it's, I think it's the right approach for Giuliani too. I mean, Giuliani was up there on the podium, you know, saying let's use a uh, trial by, trial by battle, whatever he used, whatever the term he used was. I mean, he's certainly combat. combat trial by combat. He certainly whipped up that mob as, as much as anyone. So I think it's, I think it's good. Amy, what are your thoughts on this? Or actually, sorry, Amy, Dane, what are your thoughts on this one? Let's go to Dane first. It's, it's kind of interesting to have the first one of these be sort of an extension of that legislative process. So Benny Thompson is the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee for Congress. And so it's kind of odd to have it, you know, because you figure that, the way that they would have handled it would have been through that process that's kind of run its course. And there's going to be a lot of these suits that come out. So you, you we're going to see how this all happens because I think everybody there who feels they're slighted or wrong or injured or at peril during that situation has got something that they're probably planning to come forward with. The interesting thing about Giuliani is that they're not sort of locked together. I think in another interview earlier last year, they asked him, it's like, well, what everybody that kind of crosses Donald Trump or gets separated with them or is in a position to, talk against him ends up under the bus and he had mentioned that he has a good insurance policy and so we'll see maybe he'll uh he'll apply that or, or phone in a claim on that as we go further in this the people listening to this in podcast form right now can't see but the people watching the video feed can see the florida background for dane neal and we have our newest florida man story and this one might take them all the rich this reminds me of when fred flintstone was trying to go to two parties at the same time he just kept <laughs> switching his outfits this guy used two different identities to date two different girls but he had one engagement ring yeah, I mean, you can't blame a guy for, uh, you know, trying to save a little money. Uh, it's a really it's really a romantic Valentine's Day story. You know, uh, this guy, Joseph Davis, 48 years old, is now wanted on grand theft charge. Uh, the allegation is that he like you said, Joe, he gay. He had two girlfriends. He met them both on OkCupid and he used different names. One was Joe Brown with one and the other name he used was Marcus Brown with the other. You see the deceptive criminal mind. It's really amazing. Uh, <laughs> such different names. Uh, girlfriend, girlfriend number one, he had been dating since 2015. 
And she learned through social media that he had been uh, engaged to a second woman. And by the way, he's a convicted felon. So I'm not sure if that's a filter for OkCupid, but maybe that should have been <laughs> red flag <laughs> one. Um, but when she saw that he was that this other woman was wearing an engagement ring, she thought, "Wait a second, that looks kind of familiar. Let me go to my engagement ring storage area, my my little jewelry box. Lo and behold, no engagement ring. So she put two and two together, realized that he took her engagement ring and gave it to uh, woman number two, and then there he, now he's on the lam for uh, grand theft." in florida tina this is all really comes down to the power of love don't you think it's a romantic tale of of love in the wake of, of course you uh quote a huey lewis song and in, in the midst of all of this yeah, nonsense power of love. <laughs> yeah no i mean this story is outrageous and you know what i really loved is when he took i think it was in woman number two to the um, home of woman number one and said, Hey, would you like to live with me here? And she said, sure. And then, you know, she was all set to go. And then he said, Oh, darn, you know, that place just fell through. So, I mean, it's just, I, I, I don't understand people who act this way, but what I really don't understand is like, if you're going to try to get something like this to work, wouldn't you try to simplify things a little bit just to try to maximize your chances to keep this ruse from being discovered? Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like a mad, a wacky, madcap, you know, 80s uh, sitcom. It sounds like a, a Three's Company. Episode. Yeah. <laughs> he actually did something that was, you know, wickedly brilliant at the same time. He didn't buy any engagement ring here. He stole girlfriend number one's wedding and engagement ring from her prior marriage right. to give to you know, girlfriend number two as an engagement ring. He bought zero rings and had two women on them. I mean, that is remarkable. Pretty efficient. That, that, I think it's creative repurposing is what you should <laughs> he's, being, he's being resourceful. That ring wasn't being used at all. And to kind of go back to, at least for the defense, right? He's going to have to stand in court at some point here. And we'll go back to the Robert Palmer song. It's like you're right, quoting different uh, different legal situations. I take the glove, right? Maybe he was powerless to resist his... His desire to make people happy and, of course, himself through the process. Uh, you know, I don't know how people can get away with this with social media. Maybe back in the day, you could say you were a Congressional Medal of Honor winner or, or a CIA agent. I just don't know that that works anymore. And, and obviously, we know about it. So lots of other people do, too. Dave, we got we to gotta end off by asking you favorite. Like, what's the best barbecue place maybe in Chicago and then in the country, you've been all over the world uh, with your restaurant reviews and, and, and all, all the shows. What's the best. I've been in the mood for some barbecue lately. Where, where am I going in Ooh. Chicago? Well, okay. One of my favorite ones and something that's top of mind right now, is smoke barbecue. It's over on Pulaski. It is in Barry Sorkin over there. It's been on diners, drive-ins and dives. It's been, it is, it is a beacon. There's so many great ones. So you hate it. Lily's Q is also really, really great. There's a ton of them, but, uh, but smoke is one of those. And then if you're going to go to, uh, let's think. Okay, so you've got uh, uh, Aaron Franklin down in Texas, really good. Lure Miller down in Texas is really great. There's so many of them around the country that are absolutely awesome. Martin's, if within driving distance down in Nashville, insanely good. There's so many great ones out there, but that's a couple. So to all of them, Tina, if they're, if they're listening, we know they are. We will accept uh, any of that barbecue uh, in, in lieu of uh, sponsorship money for being on Legal Faceoff. 
Sure, why not? And um, oh. I have to, I have to do a shout out to Heckies in Evanston. Heckies, my, yes. my hometown. Yeah. Well, big thanks to Dane and Amy for our legal grab bag segment of the Legal Face Off podcast. A big thanks to all our other guests on today's episode as well. For our hosts, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand. This is Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. See you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.